Rumpole and the Quality of Life by John Mortimer Adapted by Richard Stoneman Starring Julian Rind-Tutt as Horace Rumpole As I savoured the last few dregs of my third or possibly fourth glass of Chateau Thames Embankment, I found myself pondering the course my life was taking. The main reason for my rumination on that particular winter evening in 1966 was the news from the Porsche of our chambers, Mrs. Phyllida Erskine Brown, that she was planning to leave her husband to start a new life. I couldn't stop thinking about Phyllida's imminent departure. I couldn't stop thinking about Phyllida. She's beautiful and therefore to be wooed. She is a woman, therefore to be won. You talking to yourself, Rumpel? <clears throat> is that a sign you have a problem? <laughs> I'm not sure I'm the one with the problem, Erskine Brown. What's that supposed to mean? Um, you've forgotten about me completely, Jack. Just come in, Mr. Rumpel. I'll have a large glass of Shadow Fleet Street. Thank you very much. And what about yourself, sir? He'll have a large glass as well. No, no, I don't want a glass. No, he's right. Better make it a bottle. Very good, sir. I only came in for a word in your ear, Rumpel. It's Phyllida. Where? No, not here. At home. She's being perverse. Really, Erskine Brown, what you get up to in the privacy of your own bedroom is no concern of mine. I'm not talking about what goes on in our bedroom. Not that anything goes on in our bedroom at the moment. Yeah, but that's not the point. The, the point is, she has a suitcase. A suitcase? Hidden. But I found it. Full of clothes, her clothes. She, she must have packed them herself. Right. Well, where's she going? I imagine she must have a brief. Up north, perhaps. No, I checked with Henry. She has no briefs. Except for the ones in her suitcase. Joke. Not funny. Sorry. What's she up to, Rumpole? Why are you asking me? Philly confides in you. Me? No. She's told you nothing? About the alleged suitcase? Absolutely nothing. If she does tell you something, anything, will you pass it on to me? Please. Of course, Claude. Of course I will. Is that you, Rumpel? In twelve long years, has it ever been anyone else? You're just in time for lamb chops, boiled potatoes and cabbage. Didn't we have that yesterday? No, silly. Yesterday we had peas. Of course. Daddy, Daddy, you're home! Oh, Nicholas. Dear boy, give your father a hug. Does Daddy have his special Daddy smell? Red wine and cheap cigars? Nothing cheap about them. Now, where have you been, Nicholas? You weren't here yesterday or the day before. I was camping with the cubs. Were you? I did tell you, Rumpel. We slept in a tent, in a wood, and cooked sausages on a bonfire. Oh, what fun. You never listen to anything I say. You haven't forgotten about half-term, I hope. Half-term? We're all going to the seaside. Are we? Yes, Rumpel. A whole week in Cornwall with Dodo McIntosh. Oh, God. Mummy says Dodo's got a cottage by a beach. And we can make sandcastles every day. Sandcastles? Hmm. Every day? Yes, Rumpel. Yes, Daddy. Hmm. So, the victim and his mother, his wife and his daughter. Morning, Rumpel. Are you busy? Just for once, yes. Um, I, um... 
I wondered if you'd seen Phyllida yet. Um, you, you will ask, if you bump into her, about the suitcase. Uh, casually, of course, not as if I've instructed you to find out. I really can't think about your domestic problems at the moment, Erskine Brown. I have a murder to deal with. A murder? Or possibly a suicide. But my client's been accused of killing the poor chap, and I really have to sort out our defence. Harvey yeah. Derwent? Who's Derwent? Lady Perdita Derwent, the widow of the victim, Sir Daniel Derwent. Not the artist? I didn't even know he was dead. If he isn't, it would make my job a whole lot easier. Sadly, I've read the medical reports, and I'm pretty sure he died of an overdose of diamorphine. Oh, tell me more. Really? Yes. Take my mind off Philly. Go on, give me the details. Erskine Brown seemed remarkably interested in my case. After I'd briefed him on the brief, he shot off to find Henry. He was clearly desperate for some work that might distract him from his marital strife. The next day, I was leaving the Temple Underground Station on my way to Chambers when I heard a familiar voice behind me. Pick him up, Rumpole. Pick what up? Your feet. One, two, one, two. I have just walked the entire way here from Liverpool Street Station. Chin up, swing the arms. What's the matter with you, Bollard? Have you gone mad? I'm under strict orders, Rumpel, to lose weight before the big day. And these strict orders, would they be coming from your fiancée, the widow Plumstead? She's really cracking the whip. Then get out now, Bollard, before it's too late. The reception is arranged, the limousine is booked, and I, Rumpel, will be half a stone lighter when I walk my new bride out of the temple church. Do you know what I've got in this briefcase? Astonish me. I have a device for expanding the chest. I intend to use it during the odd free moment. Let the lungs take in more air. Why on earth would you want to do that? To prolong my life. Give me a few more years to enjoy with Marguerite. She doesn't let you drink, Bollard. So your life with Marguerite will certainly seem never-ending. Oh, Rumpel, you really are a terrible killjoy. And there was I looking forward to having you behind me in the weeks ahead. What do you mean? Has Henry not told you? I'm leading you. In the murder of Sir Daniel Derwent. You are leading me? Yes. And funnily enough, Erskine Brown's prosecuting. He's a Guinness. Even more reason why I should be doing this alone and without a leader. Not on this occasion, Rumpel. I just hope you'll be able to keep up with me. Was this what my career at the bar had come to? Should I put up with this humiliation? That's the question, don't you think? That's the question. Actually, Mr. Rumpel, the question was, would you like another drink? No. Yes, please, Jack. Could I have one of those as well, Jack? Oh, of course you can, Mrs. Erskine Brown. Ah, Portia. Good company, good wine, good welcome can make good people. Henry VIII. Hmm? Act One, Scene Four. <laughs> there we are. Thank you, Jack. Cheers. Cheers. Ah. Though I imagine this is more of a sorrow's drowning yeah. than a celebration I heard about R.V. Derwent. Yes, I thought I had it all to myself. Oh, it's absurd to treat you like a pupil. Mm. Have you ever considered leaving Equity Court? Well, of course I have. Usually when a judge has reported me for professional misconduct. I don't mean giving up the law. I mean, why not try a different set of chambers? Yeah. Who on earth would have an old Bailey hack like me? Forget the old Bailey... What? Forget London. I've been thinking about this a lot, Mr. Rumpole. And I think you should come with me. To Manchester. Have you quite lost your marbles? No. It makes a lot of sense. We could be together. <sighs> 
What about your twins? Shouldn't they be with their father? Who says they won't be? I thought you were pretty sure... Every day that goes by, Tristan looks more and more like you, Mr. Rumpel. Even if it is the case that I... that I, I am their father. How could we possibly start a new life together? I have a son here in London, a son who I love, and I have a wife. But you're desperately unhappy. So am I. Promise me you'll think about it. I doubt I'll be able to think about anything else. I'll let you know when I plan to leave. I hope you'll come with me. Good night, Mr. Rumpole. Yes. Good night. I considered the pros and cons of moving up north with Mrs. Erskine Brown as I sat on the tube train to Holloway Road the next day. The women's prison was a short walk from the station. Inside, I played an ill-tempered second fiddle to Ballard and acted as his wiser junior in our first conference with Lady Derwent. Lady Derwent. Yes, Mr Ballard. The extremely serious allegation in this case is that you deliberately administered a massive overdose of diamorphine to your husband... No! ...who had recently made a will in your favour. Oh! Now, the question is... Did you administer that fatal dose, Lady Dole? Just a minute, Ballard. If I may make so bold as your mere junior... What is it, Rumpo? A word, please. Over here. <clears throat> Why, for heaven's sake? Don't ask our client if she pumped her husband full of morphine. Why not? In case she says yes. Then we'd know for certain. Exactly. And I will be sitting in chambers, unemployed, and you'd be looking for your next motor insurance claim or whatever it is you do. Really, Rumpo? Now, watch carefully. You might learn something. Come along. Uh, let's start again, shall we? Sorry about that, Lady Derwin. Just a legal point we have to clear up. Is everything all right? Yes, yes, yes. Now, I wonder if you could tell me, Lady Derwent, if I've got this correct, you met your husband when he was a professor at St Matthew's Art School? Yes, I was a student. And he fell in love with you, quite understandably. Oh, for heaven's sake. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know about that, but... I fell in love with him. Mm -hmm. And then he got a divorce and married you. Um, I think you were 24 at the time? 23. And his daughter, Helen, continued to live with you. She was about 10 years younger? I'm afraid Helen always resented me. She thought I'd taken Daniel away from her mother. But it was never a happy marriage. And when it finally ended, well, Daniel's wife was very bitter. Was Helen bitter too? I think she worshipped Daniel. So did you resent your husband letting his daughter live with you? Were there quarrels, Mother? Daniel hated quarrels. I did my best not to have them. I suppose Helen wanted to go on running the house, just as her mother had done for so many years before. You understand? Yes. Lady Derwent, you also lived with your mother-in-law, Mrs Barbara Derwent, known as Buntick. How did you get on with her? Oh, I've always loved Bunty. She never criticised me. And she was so pleased when Daniel and I got married. <clears throat> uh, can, can we turn to the post-mortem results on your husband? Shall we call it the medical evidence? All the same to me. 
says your husband was suffering from an illness which gave him only a short time to live. So this doesn't make any sense. Why would anyone kill Sir Daniel for his money when he was going to die anyway? No doubt that's a point that's occurred even to you, Ballard. Yes, yes. Now, <clears throat> can I ask about this booklet, Lady Derwin? It's entitled Helping the Loved One Across the River. And it was found in your bedroom. I honestly don't know how it got there. I'd never seen it before. It seems to advocate euthanasia. Ballard. Let me read you a bit. Relatives or dear friends may provide a loved one with a bridge or a little raft on which to float gently away to a happier land. That's quite enough, Ballard. Uh, we really must be going. But I haven't yet asked. I'm not going to ask anything else. Having prevented my learned leader from inquiring whether our client had bumped off her husband and popped him on a little raft on which to float gently away to a happier land, I managed to steer him back to Chambers, where we spent the rest of the week avoiding each other. Finally, the trial began at the Old Bailey, and I was on my way to the robing room when I heard a familiar voice. Your big case today, isn't it, Mr. Rumpole? Ah, matron, good morning. It was none other than Mrs. Marguerite Plumstead. Samuel's just getting changed. He'll be with you in a moment. What a relief. I can't imagine trying to handle this trial without him. Well, of course not. But don't worry. I'm sure he'll show you how it's done. Just follow my leader. Mm. <laughs> now, if you'll excuse me, I have a light-headed juror in court number five. I'm going to administer my smelling salts. The eau de toilette she was wearing, doubtless a present from her fiancé, would have been enough to revive a juror in a coma. I entered court number two with Mr Justice Bullingham presiding. Erskine Brown rose to his feet to open proceedings. Members of the jury, this case concerns the death of Sir Daniel Derwent, the well-known portrait painter. He had made a will leaving his entire estate worth over £100,000 to his wife Perdita. He made no provision for his mother... Mrs. Barbara Derwent, or his daughter by a previous marriage, Helen. Although the two ladies lived with him in Ruskin Street, Chelsea, as members of his family. My lord, <laughs> Sir Daniel Derwent made a generous financial settlement on his mother and daughter during his lifetime, as I'm sure my learned friend Mr. Erskine Brown will confirm. Oh, um, um, let me see. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, uh, that would appear to be correct, my lord. Of course it's correct. It would also be correct if the prosecution were to present the facts in a full and unbiased way to the jury. Mr Rumpole, my understanding is that you appear here as junior counsel to your learned and very experienced leader. Very experienced. My lord, that is perfectly correct. No doubt, Mr Rumpole, you can safely leave any further objections and interruptions in the skilful hands... Of Mr. Ballard. You can rest assured I shall only interrupt again when the interests of justice demand it, my lord. I sat down and gave way to Erskine Brown, who outlined the facts of Sir Daniel's death and showed the jury the incriminating articles. It will be our case that Lady Derwent, knowing exactly what she was doing because she had read this pamphlet, administered that massive overdose to her husband. Her motive, we will suggest, was money. The freehold of the Chelsea House and Sir Daniel's considerable investments would be hers on his death. Members of the jury, you will hear evidence about the matrimonial relationship of this couple. I can tell you 
that they occupied separate bedrooms. Because he couldn't sleep. Do you wish to interrupt again, Mr. Rumpole? No, my lord. I'm quite content to let my learned friend, Mr. Erskine Brown, continue with his inaccuracies. Our time will come. But not for a while. First, we had to listen to Nurse O'Brien. In answer to Erskine Brown, she said she remembered calling at Sir Daniel's house about 4pm on the day in question. Miss Helen and Mrs. Barbara Derwent were both there, as was Lady Derwent. I couldn't help noticing her. Uh, why not? She was sitting on a chair, stripped to the waist. Stripped to the waist? From which direction? Downwards, exposing her top. The defendant was sitting among the family with her bosoms unclothed? That's right, my lord. Uh, I see. Well, let me make a note. Sitting, uh... Bosoms unclothed. Is that a criminal offence? Did you say something, Mr. Rumpole? I only ask for legal direction, my lord. Mr. Ballard, is there any way in which you can discourage further interruptions from your learned junior? I will do my very best, my lord. Thank you, Mr. Ballard. Yes, Mr. Erskine Brown? Uh, thank you, my lord. <clears throat> now, uh, Mr. Brown... You went to the Derwent residence to attend to Sir Daniel. Yes, and he was painting his wife's portrait. Painting her unclothed bosoms. Mm. Mr. Ballard, I think Mr. Rumpole spoke again. Shush, Horace. You shush, Ballard. I'm trying to listen to the evidence. Mr. Brown, you administered an injection of diamorphine, which I believe was a top-up, as Sir Daniel was in considerable pain. That's right. Was the diamorphine you injected contained in ampules? Sir Daniel's dose was in one ampule, yes. Did you have any other ampules of morphine in your medical bag? Uh, yes, I did. I had other patients to see the next day who also required painkilling injections. Did you use any of those other ampules when you gave Sir Daniel his injection? No. After you'd given the injection, what did you do? I went out into the hall uh, with my bag and I was putting on my coat when Mrs. Derwent... The mother of Sir Daniel? Yes, Bunty. She asked if I'd like to stay for a cup of tea. I said I would and I, I went back into the studio. I left my bag in the hall. Unattended? I'm afraid so. Mrs. Derwent went out to make the tea and Lady Derwent offered to help in the kitchen. Um, uh, still with her bosoms exposed? No, my lord. Oh. She put on some kind of wrap. Yeah. Uh, yes, Mr. Erskine Brown. I'm obliged, my lord. So, Mr. Brown, as the tea was being made in the kitchen, where were you? I stayed in a studio with Sir Daniel and his daughter, Helen. Did Helen leave the studio while you were there? No, I'm sure she didn't. And how did your visit end? We all had tea. I collected my bag and left. I went off duty, and when I checked the contents of the bag next morning... I discovered that a large number of diamorphine ampules were missing. And then I heard on the radio that Sir Daniel had died in the night. Miss O'Brien, I, I have to ask you this. Are you quite sure that you didn't administer a massive overdose of diamorphine on that afternoon to Sir Daniel Derwent? I am a state-registered nurse with 25 years' experience. I am certain that I did not. I am certain that... I did not. Thank you, Miss O'Brien. Will you wait there, please? Up you get, Ballard. Yes, I know, I know. <coughs> so, is there any particular question I should ask? Oh, for God's sake, could Sir Daniel have injected himself with an overdose? Yes, yes, of course. <coughs> Miss, 
Um, O'Brien. O'Brien. Could he not have administered an overdose to himself? I suppose... I suppose it's possible. And might he not have left the studio when your bag was unattended in the hall? Hmm? Ask her. And let me ask you this, Miss O'Brien. Might Sir Daniel have left the studio when tea was being prepared? Your bag was in the hall and he might have taken the diamorphine from your bag, might he not? It's possible he went out for a few minutes. That's all I can say. Is it? Is it really? Sit down, Bollard. So, you admit that Sir Daniel could have injected himself? He could have, but I don't think he did. Leave it alone, Bollard. Tell the members of the jury, Miss O'Brien, why don't you think he injected himself? Sir Daniel had a horror of hypodermic needles. I am quite sure he could not have done such a thing on his own. Oh. I see. Uh, well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Miss O'Brien. <clears throat> no further questions, my lord? My learned leader had scored an own goal. All rise. The court rose. Ballard retired to the QC's roving room on the top floor of the Old Bailey. He decided to take a little exercise, expanding his chest one, and shouting two, to himself. One, two, one, That was what two, he was doing when I opened the one, door and put my head two, round it. One, Bollard! Oh, ah! oh. oh my God! Oh, you all right? Bollard, can you hear me? Don't worry, I'll get some help. You just lie there, as you're doing. I'll summon Mrs Plumstead. Oh. There, there, Bollard. Soon have you up and about. But I fear you may not be fit enough to leave me tomorrow. What a shame. After a sleepless night, I arrived early at the Old Bailey and found Mrs Plumstead already on duty with her bag of bandages and aspirins. Good, good, good morning, Mr Rumpole. Hello, matey. How's poor old Sam today? Not good, I'm afraid. Excellent. What? I mean, excellent that he's no worse than not good. He is suffering from the after-effects of concussion. He strained a muscle in his back and he's been severely shocked. The doctor we saw last night advised Samuel to have one or two days of complete rest. Is he still in hospital? He's in his own bed at home and there he will stay until I give him a clean bill of health. Yes, yes, good idea. He's being so wonderfully brave, not thinking about himself but concerned only for the fate of his client. His last words when I left him this morning were, Rumpa must ask for an adjournment. Oh, so he was delirious. No, he was absolutely... Leave this to me. I will have a word with the judge and explain the situation. A and you'll make them wait till Samuel's better? Mr Rumpole? Are you telling me that you intend to carry on alone, without a leader? Mr Ballard is most anxious there should be no further delays, my lord. Uh... Well, then, if you're not asking for an adjournment and the prosecution are content to continue... I'm more than content, my lord. We shall have to get on with it. As your lordship pleases. I confess I was looking forward to launching an immediate attack on the principal witness, Miss Helen Derwent. Miss Derwent, you didn't approve of your father's second wife, did you? She was far too young and feckless. But I suppose he was besotted. When you say feckless... Do you mean incompetent? Totally incompetent. On the very night my father died, she'd forgotten to order the fish. No. How terrible. 
It may not sound much to you, but Daddy looked forward to his fish pie on a Friday night. Because Perdita hadn't ordered any fish, we had to have omelettes. Did Perdita cook the omelettes? Of course not. Granny made them. And all of you ate just omelettes? I think we had some mulligatawny soup as well. Your father lived for his painting, did he not? It was his life. His increasing illness meant that a time was coming when he would no longer be able to paint. That was a terrible prospect for an artist who loved his work, was it not? Yes, I imagine it was. So, might your father have felt he had nothing left to live for and taken his own life? Daddy never talked about suicide. Not to you, perhaps. It was you who found your father dead in the studio. I couldn't sleep. So I went downstairs. He was on the couch, not breathing. Uh, please don't distress yourself, Miss Derwent. I'm, I'm sorry, my lord. Be gentle, Mr. Rumpole. I'm sure your learned leader would show much more compassion. Yes, but he's not here and I am, oh darling. So let me ask my questions in whichever way I see fit. Was what I thought, but did not say. My apologies, my lord. Miss Derwent... Just to finish off the sequence of events, did you search Lady Derwent's bedroom? I took a look in there, yes. In the hope of finding something that would incriminate your stepmother? No. Then why? I did not believe that Perdita would be able to face looking after Daddy through his final illness. She was just too young and... Feckless? Exactly. So it often occurred to me that she might try and help Daddy out of this world, especially if it would be to her financial advantage. Did your daddy tell you he was leaving all his money to his young wife? He said that, yes. Having previously settled comfortable incomes on you and his mother. That's been agreed by the prosecution, Mr. Rampole. We needn't waste time on that. Your lordship is always helpful. Miss Derwent, do you know anything about the law of wills? I know a little. Do you know that if Lady Derwent is found guilty of her husband's murder, she will inherit nothing? Miss Derwent, did you know that, or didn't you? I suppose I may have had some idea. So this £100,000 estate would then be divided between you and your grandmother, an extremely satisfactory result so far as you're concerned. Uh, Mr Rumpole, are you suggesting that these exhibits, the ampules, the pamphlet... That they were never in your client's bedroom? Your lordship sees the point so quickly. Miss Derwent, you found the empty ampules near your father's body, didn't you? And the pamphlet was his, was it not? Of what precisely are you accusing me? Mr. Rumpole, may I remind you of the evidence given by the nurse, Miss O'Brien? This witness remained in the studio with Miss O'Brien the whole time the medical bag was unattended. This witness had no chance at all of removing the ampules of diamorphine. Oh, I agree with that, my lord. I'm not suggesting for a moment that this witness killed her father. Well, then, what are you suggesting? That she put the exhibits in my client's bedroom in the hope that some gullible jury might convict my client of murder. Oh, oh really? Then how do you say that my father died? I say what the jury is going to say when they have considered all the evidence. Your father killed himself because his painting hand would no longer obey his orders. 
Could I convince the jury that Daniel Derwent committed suicide? My final speech would be my last opportunity. Members of the jury, no accused person can be forced to give evidence. Lady Derwent has been accused of murdering the husband she loved. She is fully entitled to say to this blundering prosecution... Steady on. All right. Prove it. But don't expect any help from me. And at the end of the day, to say to you that nothing has been proved beyond reasonable doubt. A successful painter who loves his art finds that through illness he can paint no longer. Can you not understand his decision to end his life? Nurse O'Brien leaves her bag in the hall. Sir Daniel Derwent leaves the studio for just long enough to fetch those diamorphine ampules. Later that night, he injects himself with a massive overdose. Nurse O'Brien tells us that he didn't like needles. Not many of us do, members of the jury. But if we are desperate enough, we can use them. So, what remains of this pathetic prosecution? It's not pathetic. We merely have Helen Derwin's evidence of what she says she found after her father's death. Why did she, cold and calculating as she is, go up to her stepmother's bedroom on that terrible morning after she had found her father dead? when any normal girl would be too overcome with grief to do anything. Was it to find evidence or to plant evidence? Of course these things were in the house. Her father had used them. Did she lie and say she had found them in Perdita's bedroom to feed her spite and to satisfy her greed for money? Members of the jury, I suggest that's exactly what she did. When the jury had retired... My anxiety returned. So I smoked as I paced along the corridor. I saw a figure in a black dress on a distant bench, went over and sat beside her. Bunty Derwent was a fat old woman, but she had the calm and trusting face of a child. She'll get off, won't she? The jury won't find her guilty. Do you think she's guilty? He wanted to die, you know, my son. He couldn't paint anymore. So he killed himself? No, no. He needed help. A little raft on which to float gently away to a happier land. It was your pamphlet. It was all for the best, don't you think? Individual omelettes. And the soup served out in the kitchen. Mulligatawny. I suppose that would have hidden the taste of the diamorphine. You pinched the ampules from the nurse's bag. You put the contents into your son's food. Helen found them, empty, in the kitchen, and used them to blame the stepmother she hated. They'll still find her not guilty. But you put Perdita through the hell of this trial. She's quite, quite innocent. And the jury will see it. I wish I had your faith in British justice. The usher called us back into court. The foreman was asked to stand, asked if they'd reached a verdict upon which they were all agreed. And then the court door opened. 
and Ballard was suddenly among us like a wounded soldier. His head bandaged under his wig and walking with the aid of a stick and Mrs. Plumstead. Careful, Samuel. Sit quietly. They settled into the row in front of me just as the final question was asked. Do you find the defendant perdetermined guilty or not guilty of murder? Not guilty. An order. May my client be released without delay and without a stain on the character? Of course, Mr. Ballard. And how good to see you back in your rightful position. I'm much obliged, my lord. Oh, Mr. Rumpole, what a wonderful victory for Samuel. Given he was hardly here, he did remarkably well. Mr. Rumpole, Mr. Rumpole, how can I ever thank you? I don't know. Just live your life as you wish to do so. How Lady Derwent intended to live her life, I had no idea. I did not, of course, mention Bunty's part in the death of her son to a soul. What would be the point of another trial? I was rather more concerned by how I intended to live my life. The departure of Phyllida Erskine-Brown was rapidly approaching, and she kept dropping subtle hints that she'd quite like to know what I was planning to do. What are you planning to do, Mr. Rumpole? I just don't know. I think... I think I need more time. I'm leaving on Saturday. But that's when Ballard's getting married. I know. And Claude will be busy with all the arrangements so I can slip away straight after the service without him noticing. It's really very soon. There's no point in putting this off any longer. I've made up my mind, Mr. Rumpole. I'm afraid... I'd still have to weigh up the evidence before reaching my verdict. I could see that Phyllida was unimpressed by my lack of commitment. But this was a big decision to make. I knew what the younger, white-wigged Rumpel would have done. I'm on my way to Manchester. I love Phyllida. Always have, always will. I'm pretty sure I'm the father of her children, so it makes perfect sense for me to bring them up as my own, which they probably are. But how would the older, more mature Rumpel feel when he looked back from the future? It was an act of selfish betrayal to leave poor Hilda and sweet Nicholas alone and without a leader. For the sake of a short, passionate affair with a colleague's wife, I turned my back on my own family and behaved no better than the heartless criminals I was used to defending in court. What do you mean, a short, passionate affair? I'm going to spend the rest of my life with Philida. That's what you thought. Turns out you were not the man of her dreams. And her successful career soon emasculated you, leaving you to regret your move away from London. You're saying she's a better barrister than me. She was a QC within a few years, while you were scraping around for whatever common assaults and petty thefts you could lay your hands on. But we'll have each other. <laughs> the twins got in the way. As a busy silk, Phyllida didn't have time to look after the children, so you were forced to tend to their every need. None of this makes any sense. How can I possibly tell what will or won't happen in the future? Is that you, Rumpel? No, Hilda, it's... Actually, yes, it's me. Nicholas is asleep, and there's a lamb chop in the oven. You ever tempted to cook something else, apart from meat and two veg? I'm not sure what you mean, Rumpole. Do you never long for a change, Hilda? If you're tired of my cooking, you can always rustle up a meal for yourself. After a long day at work, the last thing I want to do is boil myself an egg. If you spend less time in Pomeroy's, your days wouldn't be quite so long. A man needs a place to go of an evening. 
Well, you have your home, Rumpole. You can drink your wine here, as I see you're doing. In Pomeroy's, no one tucks when I top myself up. <sighs> you drink too much, and you don't take enough exercise. <clears throat> I don't want you dropping dead. Don't you? You wouldn't have a nicer life without me? Oh, what a ridiculous thing to say. Is it? I imagine you're fairly drunk. That would explain it. Right, sit down and I'll fetch your food. Thy food is such as hath been belched on by infected lungs. Mmm, <sighs> looks delicious. I've bought the tickets for Saturday. For the train. To Penzance. On Saturday? But that's the day of Ballard's wedding. I know. We're catching the late afternoon train so we can stay for most of the reception. And I have to come, do I? It's a family holiday, Rumpole. What sort of a father would you be if you stayed by yourself in London? What sort, indeed? By the time Saturday came, I still didn't know what I intended to do at the end of the wedding. Every man from Chambers turned up at the Temple Church in hired toppers and tailed coats from Mossbross, with the women resplendent in best frocks and hats. After the union of Soapy Sam and Mrs Plumstead, we all made our way to Equity Court, where a handsome marquee had been erected in the garden. Matron cut the cake to general applause. And I emptied my third or fourth glass of champagne. Before I could get a refill, I felt a hand on my arm. As soon as the speeches begin, I'm going to slip away, Mr Rumpole. Right. Will you be coming with me? I'm sorry. I'm in two minds. But you've had all week to make a decision. I need longer. You have till five o'clock, if you want to travel on the same train. Euston Station. Our nanny is meeting me there with the twins. Five o'clock, you say? Oh, please, Mr Rumpole. This is our chance to be together. Forever. Careful. People will see. People will soon know all about us. I hope... Goodbye, Horace. See you at the station. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, may, I, may I have your attention, please? My, my learned friends, friends and friends of the happy couple, as uh, best man, it falls to me to say a few words about the groom, Mr Samuel Ballard, QC. Yeah. <laughs> yes, thank you, Rumpole. No heckling, if you please. Now... Um, yeah. no, no, no. Let, 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 me, let me take you back. <clears throat> let me take you back to 1914, when two major events occurred. The outbreak of World War I and the birth of Samuel. I couldn't listen to Claude droning on, so I left the tent and sat on a bench which just happened to be next to a case of rather inferior claret. I told you not to drink too much, Rumpole. You'll fall asleep and miss the train. Which train? The 5.15 to Penzance. I'm leaving now to fetch Nicholas and the luggage from Froxbury Mansions. Will you come with me? I, um, I don't think I can. Why not? I promised Ballard um, I talked to him about a case he's handing over to me. Because, well, he'll be on his honeymoon, so I, I really have to stay a little bit longer. Sorry. Well, I'll just have to manage without you. But you'll be at Paddington Station by five o'clock at the latest? 
Five o'clock? Yes. Now get a cab as soon as you've finished. Don't let me down, Ron. I'll do my very best, Hilda. Yeah, my very best. What on earth did that mean? It's obvious. Euston Station and a train to Manchester. Paddington Station and a train to Penzance. I simply couldn't decide. I say, Rumpo, did you miss my speech? Yes, Elkin Brown, I'm happy to say that I did. But I spent hours composing that magical oration. There were tears and laughter, often at the same time. Yes, I'm sure you were marvellous, Claude, but if you don't mind, I have a rather awkward problem to sort out. <laughs> I used your trick of banging in some Shakespeare. When I married Philida, you made a speech with lots of quotes from his plays or, um, you know, sonnets or what have you. I don't remember. <laughs> Doubt thou the stars are fire. Doubt that the sun doth move. Doubt the truth to be a liar, but never doubt I love. I tried to find something about the sanctity of marriage, but nothing came to light. For what is wedlock forced but a hell, an age of discord and continual strife? Whereas the contrary bringeth bliss and is a pattern of celestial peace. Yes. <clears throat> Have you seen Philip, by the way? Hmm? Have you seen my wife? I think <clears throat> she's been avoiding me all day. Well, can you really blame her? Well, what's that supposed to mean? It means that you don't treat her with the respect she deserves and you will soon come to regret your philandering ways, Erskine Brown. How dare you? She is a goddess... Who deserves better. Don't talk about my wife like that. I must go. Go? Go where? I have a train to catch, Erskine Brown. Taxi! I say, taxi! It was clear to me now what I had to do. A new life with Philida. A fresh start with Hilda. Can you please drive a little faster? Here, keep the change. Which platform? Which platform? There. Excuse me. Out of the way, please. Wait. Don't wave your flag. I must get on that train. Quick as you can, sir. Uh, uh. Having leapt aboard with seconds to spare, I searched the compartments, looking for the woman with whom I knew I had to be. Sorry. Thought I'd never get here. Mummy, why is Daddy so red in the face? He's been drinking. Yes. Actually, been running. <sighs> you look very funny, Daddy. Doesn't he look very funny, Mummy? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, he does. <sighs> I told you not to be late, right? Yes, I'm, I'm so sorry, Hilda. I always try to obey. In the future, you'll have to try a bit harder. In the future... As dear old William Wordsworth put it, let us learn from the past to profit by the present. And from the present, to live better in the future. Quite so, Rumpel. Now, if you don't mind, I think I'll close my eyes. Time for a little rest. Rumpole and the Quality of Life by John Mortimer, Horace Rumpole was played by Julian Rind-Tutt, Older Rumpole was Timothy West, and Hilda Rumpole was Jasmine Hyde. Claude Erskine-Brown was Nigel Anthony, Sam Ballard, Michael Cochran, and Philida Erskine-Brown was Cathy Sarah. Sir Daniel Derwent 
was Ben Crow, Bunty Derwent, Deborah Findlay, Perdita Derwent, Hetty Baines Russell, Nicholas Rumpole, Jackson Knopf, and Judge Bullingham was Ewan Bailey. Other parts were played by members of the company. Rumpole and the Quality of Life was adapted by Richard Stoneman, directed by Marilyn Emery, and is a Catherine Bailey production for BBC Radio. <laughs>